0: Change the lives of others by starting with your own and join Priory Group. They're recruiting for various roles across the UK with permanent, part-time and bank positions available. You don't need previous healthcare experience, just a desire to make a difference with competitive salaries and an excellent benefits package, including a dedicated career pathways program. Discover how you could make a difference with Priory. See jobs.priorygroup.com or text Podcast to double six triple seven.
1: Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. In the world of biology, subspecies can be rather contentious. Are they real? The debate continues. But are they useful? The answer often is yes. And today, we're going to explore their value as we discuss the recent heredity paper, phylogeography of the iconic Australian red-tailed black cockatoo, Calyptoranchus banksii, and implications for its conservation. This paper is a fantastic example of what you can do when you combine genomics and morphology, and it shows just how valuable museum collections can be for informing active conservation programs.
2: First of all, can you please both introduce yourselves? Hello, I'm Kyle Hewitt. I recently completed my PhD at the University of Sydney and the Australian Museum. And uh, yeah, I think we're discussing one of my chapters today on the red tailed black cockatoo. Um, I'm now working for NGO Trace Wildlife Forensics Network as a wildlife forensic scientist.
3: And I'm Leo Joseph, I'm director of the Australian National Wildlife Collection at CSIRO, which is Australia's federal science agency. And uh, really, I'm a birdwatcher who's always been interested in evolution, especially parrots, and in particular, even more black cockatoo. So it was uh, a lot of fun to work on this project with Kyle.
1: Well, thank you both for joining me. And as you both kind of mentioned there, this paper focuses on the red-tailed black cockatoo, which you describe as iconic, but it might not be that well known outside of Australia. So I wonder if you could just start off by telling us a bit about these birds and why they interest
2: you. Uh, Okay, I can start off by giving a quick description of the bird. They're a large black cockatoo. As you probably tell from the name, the males have stark red panels in their tail. While females have more of an orange-yellow bars across their tail with some barring across their chest and spots on their face, they're very stunning looking and I'm very lucky to have got an opportunity to study such a lovely looking species. But also from an evolutionary point of view, they are fascinating. They're found in pockets of eucalypt woodland throughout Australia. And before our study and possibly After our study, they are divided into five subspecies. I don't want to give too much away yet. And what's interesting about these subspecies is they're so morphologically and ecologically different. And their their morphological differences reflect their different habitats. So for example, the southeast subspecies and the southwest subspecies, they look relatively similar to one another, except for their beak size. So the southwest have very large beaks. The southeast subspecies, there's quite small beaks. And the, the species suffer from habitat degradation, as do a lot of Australian cockatoos. And this is because they rely on these old hollow bearing trees. And as soon as you clear these trees, they lose their nesting habitat. And I believe sometimes they take 200 years to grow these hollows that these cockatoos rely on. So another reason why we wanted to study this species is because some of the subspecies are of conservation concern, mainly from this habitat degradation.
3: Yeah, Uh, I might add that if, to my surprise, the world does not understand that black cockatoos are indeed the pinnacle of evolution, (laughs) then the world is familiar with the Galapagos finches as a model of evolution through their different bill morphology. Now, the black cockatoos generally have wonderful variation in their bill morphology, as Kyle mentioned, adapt to getting seeds out of different food sources. And the variation within and between the species is as much of an evolutionary study as it is in the Galapagos finches. And so, one dimension of the study is that it sets up this great level of study of variation of bill morphology in relation to relationships among populations and then within and between species and so on.
1: Yeah, the Galapagos finches came straight into my brain when you started talking about morphology. And um, so hopefully lots of people listening will be aware of that and kind of understand its importance. And I guess you kind of mentioned earlier that this paper is kind of really focused in on this sort of subspecies diversity. And a lot of people listening might already be aware of this, but I wonder if you could just explain why it's important to look at this level of within species diversity when it comes to conservation.
2: Yeah, so I guess to protect species genetic diversity, you need to consider the unique genetic units within the species if it does indeed have any and here we were kind of considering subspecies equivalent to evolutionary significant units which is basically a unit that's used by conservation managers to manage their genetic diversity. So a big problem which is getting focused on quite a bit lately in literature is that many threatened species uh, such as the red-tailed black cockatoo, contain these isolated populations which are becoming relatively small they have a relatively small effective population size. So small populations are probably going to suffer the effects of inbreeding depression. So their reproductive fitness declines, but also the loss of diversity in general decreases the capabilities to adapt to a changing environment. And we all know how serious climate change is affecting our species. And if they're not capable to adapt in this changing environment, they're basically doomed these small isolated populations. So our paper was sort of First characterizing these conservation units or these evolutionary significant units, but then not stopping there, which is what often happened in the past. Of figuring out if any of these units were probably suffering from genetic erosion, so inbreeding and loss of diversity. And then considering how can we boost the genetic health? How can we stop this genetic erosion? So in the past, when when we characterized these conservation units, the, the management strategy was to keep them isolated, to manage them separately. But Sort of paradigm shift has emerged to how do we manage them together? How can we identify these at risk populations, these small isolated populations, and if needed, boost their genetic diversity? So that's sort of what our paper aimed to do. And yeah, and I I think genetic problems often don't get taken seriously enough, or there's just not the genetic data to help the genetic diversity within a species. So hopefully, this paper goes a long way to helping genetic problems in the red tailed black cockatoo.
3: Yeah. From my point of view of understanding the taxonomy and systematics of Australian birds, birds generally are pretty well known relative to groups like insects and enables you to ask different questions. And in the case of Australian birds, especially these widespread species, things we think of as species with uh, a number of naturally fragmented populations, one can use the modern genomics and genetics techniques to better understand how the diversity is distributed across the landscape and indeed whether there's more than one species involved you know I was always interested in the red-tailed black cockatoo being studied in this way but I was a little concerned that we perhaps didn't have enough samples from around its range to really do it properly but as the world moved on into genomics which allowed access to so many loci uh, when Kyle appeared and was wanting to study the red-tailed black copper too, he had the means to tackle the problem with genomics methods. So the number of loci that Kyle was going to be able to get at, coupled with the samples that we did have, supplemented with a few here and there, meant that the stage was set to finally look into how genetic diversity is distributed in this bird. and indeed. The nagging question in the background was, is it really one species? And so it was great that Kyle came along and said, let's do it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fantastic and it's really interesting there that you're mentioning the samples because these birds are distributed across pretty much an entire continent like they're really all over australia so you relied very heavily on museum samples and i guess a lot of people listening might be used to doing their own field work so i wonder if you could just tell us what it was like using these pre-existing collections and like were they easy to access was the dna quality good I uh, do you want to start saying you are uh, ahead of a collection yeah
3: okay i'll start so australia like much of the world has a, a around about a, I don't know, 150, 200 year history of collections of specimens of birds. And so since the advent of the Alazheim era, which was about 1980, the Australian National Wildlife Collection has been keeping tissue samples when it collects specimens on field trips and when we receive uh, salvaged birds donated to us. So we have uh, a collection of about Um, It's getting up to around 40-odd thousand now. Tissue samples with heart, liver, muscle, stored at minus 80 for DNA work. And so over those 30-odd years, red-tailed black cockatoos had been collected with all the necessary permits, of course, around much of its range. Most of the populations were uh, represented. And so Kyle had already access to tissues. For higher quality DNA but of course Kyle this is where you should probably take over and talk about these extra genomic work did from Topaz.
2: So Leo mentioned the revolution of genomics and being able to obtain thousands of genetic markers but even more recently we can now obtain these thousands of genetic markers in very tricky sample types. I'm talking Ancient DNA, but more so museum samples, so so study skins, so samples that weren't collected specifically for DNA. So in uh, Leo's collection at the Australian National Wildlife Collection and a number of other museums throughout Australia, there was many of these study skins, so basically taxidermy birds, and we could actually utilise also these for our genetic study. It's impractical these days to go out into the field to get all the necessary permits, which are a lot stricter these days, and with the project timelines to get Australian-wide set of samples. There was no. As much as I would have loved to go out in the field, and feel like I missed, selfishly I missed out on that, I did get to see a, a, a real-life one while at Western Australian Museum uh, while I was waiting for an Uber. Um, <laughs> so that was probably the extent of my field work. So what we did was we uh, cut a bit of the tow pad from the study skin and we used the toe pad because it's not really a morphological diagnostic trait usually used by morphologists but yeah we we could generate so much data from uh, these tiny toe pad samples Um, but this this relied on decades and decades of collections and ornithologists from the past collecting these study skins and taxidermy and, and keeping them well preserved in these collections Mm, definitely. I think it's always great to hear just how sort of valuable
1: these museum collections can be and just what an amazing resource they are. I don't think a lot of people outside of science fully appreciate just the sheer extent of these collections and what they can tell us.
3: Yeah, and that, so sort of temporal dimension to the collections is a really important thing. And being in the collections world, I always take the opportunity to say we don't want the collections to stop because we don't want the temporal dimension to stop.
1: No, perfect. And I guess you've clearly got lots of samples from across the range. You've got tons of data. So I guess the really big question is what were you finding out about their population genetic structure and, I guess, genetic health?
2: Yeah, so I guess there, there were so many questions we wanted to, to answer, but um, ended up being a sort of a conservation focus, but in a broad evolutionary context. So we mainly wanted to find out if there were evolutionary significant units within the species, and we assumed there were because there were five subspecies characterized before we started. And then we wanted to find the genetic diversity levels of these genetic units and how interconnected they were so we found five very divergent evolutionary significant units uh, but these did not match the five subspecies which i think leo had some idea that that would be the case but yeah, i think there was some bets on what was going to happen before the genetic data came out which made it a bit more exciting so first of all the, the inland subspecies which sort of occurs across patches throughout arid inland australia and in five distinct populations we kind of thought that they wouldn't be sort of one genetic unit, but we weren't sure. They all look similar, but we did find that they were two separate evolutionary genetic units. So the one in Western Australia was actually more phylogenetically similar to another subspecies than it was to the other populations of that same subspecies. So they're clearly very different, but they do look quite similar. And we put that down to a case of convergent evolution
1: and is that mainly in their bill morphology, you mean?
2: Yeah, so their short, stumpy legs, their plumage, but yeah, mainly their bill morphology. But subsequently, after finding this genetic difference, one of the co-authors in the paper who was a ornithologist and very good morphologist, he did find some subtle but distinct morphological variation between these two units. So that led to a taxonomic change. And one of the aims was to clarify the taxonomy of the species. But we weren't trying to find subspecies here. we were sort of trying to find the evolutionary significant units to help their conservation. But this is something we couldn't ignore. There was clearly this genetically distinct population in Western Australia that just didn't match the rest of its subspecies distribution so we basically needed to give it a name leo actually came up with the name uh it's escondidas which I, I believe you've been wanting to use for a while leo Yeah, yeah. it means hidden in uh spanish or portuguese referring to the, that this population was hidden in plain sight so this subspecies was hidden in plain sight so we knew it was there but we didn't know it was so different to the rest of our uh, as it used to be named Samuli. oh uh, that's
0: New Yakult Light is now enriched with vitamin D and E. Magically placed there by enchanted golden sunbeams. No. Carried upon the wings of a thousand ancient butterflies that swoop through the twilight forest. Oh, stop it. They're added by scientists, actually. And, of course, filled with Yakult's unique bacteria scientifically proven to reach the gut alive. Yakult. A little bottle of science, not
1: magic. Fantastic. And I guess you started with five subspecies and you've still got five. They're just a very different five.
2: Yeah, so I guess I should elaborate on it. So we, we named Escondidas, which makes six subspecies, right? But the two northern subspecies distributed continuously throughout northern Australia. There was thought to be a subspecies divide at the Gulf of Carpentaria, but there was no genetic evidence of any genetic structure within this northern continuous population. So We synonymize that into uh, just Banksiae. It used to be Banksiae and Macrorhynchus. So that brings it back down to five again. Mm, Fascinating.
1: And I guess you've kind of already touched upon them a bit by discussing these sort of like evolutionary units. But I wonder what the sort of real conservation implications of this study are.
2: Okay, well, there's two primary ones we discussed in the paper. There's obviously this elevation of Escondidas to a new subspecies and a separate evolutionary significant unit. It's quite a significant finding because now we need to consider this distinct genetic diversity. We need to prioritize conserving that genetic diversity. So basically what we've recommended is just an assessment of this new subspecies. So where exactly does it range? What exactly does it eat? And secondly, we wanted to identify at risk populations. So, populations that were potentially suffering from genetic erosion. And we did so. So, Graptagyne subspecies, the one in the southeast, we know there's probably only about a thousand individuals left. So, the effective population size is going to be even smaller than this. And the genetic data matched this low effective population size. So, it was by far the least genetically diverse. So, it's very likely that this subspecies is suffering. From uh, the effects of inbreeding, so inbreeding depression, and and it might not have the capabilities to evolve to a changing environment. Um, so in the paper, we suggest how this can be augmented. So because it is such a small population, and genetic erosion is inversely proportional to the population size, the genetic erosion is going to get worse and worse. And basically, if we do nothing to augment this genetic diversity, it's just going to dwindle. So we do suggest a strategy to rescue this genetic diversity by crossing it with another subspecies. There is a danger in this species of outbreeding depression because the subspecies are so divergent from one another. But usually outbreeding depression is very predictable and we can test for it. So I think this is something that definitely needs to get considered in the future and is getting considered.
3: Yeah, if I can uh, add a bit about Southeastern subspecies Graptogyne, well, by 1980, almost nothing was known about that population. We knew they were there. And then I was lucky to be in some field work on that population during the 80s, and we learned a lot about their natural history. And like many black cockatoo or black cockatoo populations, they're quite specialized in their food. So these ones in the southeast have two primary food sources. And so they have issues of habitat loss, habitat fragmentation. And so it's great that there is a research group out of the University of Queensland with Dr. Martin Maron looking into the conservation status of that population. And they've certainly been in touch with Kyle and and us wondering what are the implications of these results for how they should manage that population.
1: No, fascinating. And I guess as you're talking there, I mean it's obviously a fantastic study on this species and you've been able to find out a huge amount of data about them that has really big implications for their conservation and their management. But I can also see quite a lot of parallels with tons of other systems and tons of other species, and hopefully people will now go and give it a read and try and replicate your methods. So I guess just to finish up, I wonder if you could remind us of the title of your paper and also tell us about anybody who deserves a mention in this work.
2: So, the name of the paper is the phylogeography of the iconic Australian red-tailed black cockatoo Calyptorhynchus banksii and implications for its conservation? I, I guess I'll mention all the authors. So my primary PhD supervisors, Nathan Lowe and Rebecca Johnson. So Nathan's at University of Sydney, and Rebecca's recently moved to the Smithsonian. And uh, the other supervisor from University of Sydney is Simon Ho, Greta Frankman, and Mark Elridge from the Australian Museum Research Institute. And of course, Leo <laughs> and, and uh, Dig Shuddy as well from the Australian National Wildlife Collection. Fantastic.
1: Well, hopefully, like I say, people will now go and give that paper a read. And thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us and share this research with us and telling us all about this wonderful species.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Yeah.
2: Thank you for having us. It's a great platform and I do listen to these podcasts quite often. So thank you very much for giving us the opportunity. Thanks to Kyle and
1: Leo. If you want to read their paper, you can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash H-D-Y. And if you remember back to our last episode, I told you that the host of the Genetics Unzipped podcast, Dr. Kat Arney, recently published a new book, which just so happens to be the topic of their latest episode.
0: In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we bring you exclusive excerpts from my new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer Evolution and the Science of Life, exploring where cancer came from, where it's going, and how we might beat it. Many of us think of cancer as a contemporary killer, a disease of our own making caused by our modern lifestyles. But that perception just isn't true. Although it might be rare in many species, cancer is the enemy lurking within every complex organism. Why? Because cancer is a bug in the system of life. We get cancer because we can't not get it. Cancer starts when cells rebel against the social norms of the body, throwing off their molecular shackles and growing out of control in a shambolic mockery of normal life. This is why we can't avoid cancer, because the very genes that drive it are essential for life itself. So, what are we going to do about it? To find out, listen to Genetics Unzipped, or head over to rebelcellbook.com for more information and links to buy the book. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Please give the episode a listen, and if you can, check out the book itself. But that's us for today. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetics Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on all good podcast platforms, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. Dot com. I'm James Bergen, thanks for listening.